that is what we're talking about, is this idea that the way we encounter Christ and the way in which we live is what gives glory and testimony to God. It is how we prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And so the next 25 minutes or so, we're just going to unpack the theological part of it. But you'd experienced it. You're living it out. So A pluses for you guys. Um, like Jeff said, we are in the fourth stanza of Joy to the World. This is the last verse, Joy to the World, right? Um, it says this, He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, wonders of his love, wonders of his love. And this is the fourth stanza. And like all good Christian stanzas, as all good Christian winter camps go, there's the proclamation of who God is in verse one. There's an invitation to worship, verse two. There's the salvation story, verse three. And verse four is, a, is really the invitation of how then do we live? If all of this about God is true, then how are we supposed to live? And the reality is, is how we live our lives proves what we really believe. And I think a lot of times we're content with having a really simplistic view of God, and therefore we live this really simplistic faith. But we know that we're super complex people, and we know that God is super complex. And because of our complexity, we have to continue to grow and to learn, to be humbly postured towards God, towards all the relationships in our lives, to continue to grow and live in all the tensions of all the different complexities in our relationship. Once we take away the complexity in our relationships, we no longer are in real relationship. And I found this to be true in my own marriage. You may not believe it, but I'm on the verge of being married for 25 years. It's so long. And uh, when we first got, when we were first dating, we were first married, oh, Man, we loved making out. We would do anything, right? We had long-distance relationship. I'd drive 10 hours just to make out with my wife and then just to turn back around and go to school. When we were first married, we had no kids, dual income. We would just vacation. We'd spend money. We don't, I don't think we cooked for the first two years because we just loved spending money because we were stupid. But I mean, we just loved. There's so much affection, so much lust, so much all of it. It's just perfect, perfect. And, um, and then we had kids and got older and you know, there's like this other part that's true about our relationship too. So one of it is we're super attracted to each other, love each other, blah, 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 all that good stuff. But then there's this other part that, man, we, we're committed to each other. This is a covenant under God for our whole life. We stood in front of all of our friends and said, for richer or poor, you know, for all the things. And gosh, there was a season in our life. We've had seasons, right? It's like, whoa, we're in it. Like, I love you, like in the classical sense of the word, love. You know, I'm committed to you. I have duty for you, right? Because both those things are true. There's this love and affection, and then there's this obligation, and both of those things are true in marriage. And if we only lean into one of them, we miss out on all the complexities of what it means to be in a true marriage, right? Well, our kids are in high school now, and so we have four years left, and so Kay and I are like, listen, we got four years to really figure this thing out, because then we're stuck with each other without kids, without a buffer, and so we need to make sure that we're not just one or the other. We need to live fully in this tension of having this really warm-hearted love and affection towards each other and make sure we're still committed and doing the duty thing. And it's a tension. And like all prayers like that, God's like, well, okay, let's go. And so we're working it out. Pray for us. It's super fun. But I tell you that story because that is the Christian story. That is our life, that we are in such, con uh, we're in such complex relationship. And if we make our relationship simple, we miss out on everything. And the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas, who God is, is so complex that we need to make sure that we're engaging God in all the complexities that he brings to the table, right? This stanza begins that he rules the world with truth and grace. And if you're a Bible scholar or if you um, have just paid attention during our John series, you know that, comes, that phrase comes from somewhere, I'll give you a hint, in John. Where in John does it talk about that he is full of truth and grace? 
Who wants to take a guess? I'll give you a hint. It's between one and eight. Pick a number between one and eight. No, it's not three. That's John 3.16. Sorry, John 1. Good job, everybody. Okay, let's try it again. John 1. That's where we are, right? And right at the very beginning of John 1, that's the Christmas story. So in Luke, you have the Christmas story of angels and shepherds and Mary, and it's super sweet. In John chapter 1, it's the theological Christmas story, right? It's the story that Jesus, who's the Word in the beginning, crafted all of creation, invades creation. And what I love it is he invades creation not only to be the conquering king, but also to be our heavenly father. And so let's begin in verse 12. It says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so already we have this tension in our relationship with God, both this covenant idea that we're adopted into God's family, and then this kingship idea that God is the ruler of the world, and he's, we're invited to be his citizens and subjects and submit to him. And so, right, there's both a love and affection and power and authority dynamic that we have to wrestle with. But he goes on in verse 14, says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I love this picture of Jesus, that he is full of grace and truth. We can't simply just make him the little baby Jesus, right, on Christmas morning, or the suffering servant of Easter, or the really scary guy who comes at the end of Revelation to conquer the world and all the crazy imagery, right? That Jesus is this complex God who has made himself known to us. And Christians for a long time have have done these side-by-sides. And one of the pictures I love is the picture of the lion and the lamb. Right, the lion and the lamb. And that's because Jesus rules the world with both truth and grace. He comes as a humble, gentle baby, made himself proclaimed to the shepherds. He lives his life as a nomad and a servant. He washes his disciples' feet. He dies a, 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 a criminal's death on the cross. He proclaims, the, the, he shows himself in the resurrection to Mary. Right? I mean, he's just like this very approachable, wide on-ramp precious God. But we also know that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we get this whole picture finally in Revelation, right? That he is a God that does not get messed with. Even though he was a suffering servant on his time on earth, he sits at the right hand of God and the entire heavens proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's this complex being who invites us into intimate relationship, but is also so full of power that we're compelled to submit to that as well. And I love Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He gives this great picture where he kind of puts both of these pictures side by side. He says this, So Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient even to the point of death even death on a cross. And really in the Christian story, we tell that story over and over and over again because we want the whole world to know that this God of the universe, the almighty king has made himself available. He has forgiven our sins. He has submitted himself and humbled himself so that all of us have access to him. But then he turns the corner here in verse 9. says, But therefore that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. That's a very different picture. You have this man 
God coming in the form of man, suffering on the cross to the point of death. And then at the same time, God is exalting him, right? And it says, where every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so here we are, we're living in this tension. And the, so the real question is, how are we as God's people, how are we supposed to live? This past, the, the, sorry, the song says, he rules the world with truth and grace. These two things are intention. This suffering servant, this humble and gentle God who wants all people to come to know him. Intention with the King of kings and Lord of lords who's actively establishing his kingdom and one day will make all wrongs right. And we as God's people are invited to live in that tension. How are we supposed to live? What God do we imagine when we live? And most of us want to do the right thing. We want to take this faith of ours and put it into action, to activate it, to give honor and glory to God. And what's so fun is, is we think, God, is God even around? Is he waiting? And there's this passage in 2 Peter that says, listen, this God, the, the, the holy, righteous King of kings and Lord of lords, he didn't forget about us. He's actually being patient because when Jesus finally, finally does come back, he's going to come back in all of his might, in all of his glory. But Second Peter says, but the Lord is slow in returning because he wants as many people to come to know him as possible. And it's been like 2,000 years and people are like, is he ever coming back? Like, I don't know. And part of me is like, don't come back because I want as many people to come and know the Lord. And so we live in this tension of how are we supposed to live as people who are children of this gentle and kind Heavenly Father and the ruler of the universe. And Christians have been in tension forever of how do we do that? And if we don't have that tension, we miss out on the complexity of being the full body of Christ that God longs for us. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, Peter gives us a little snapshot of how to live this life. And I love it because almost everywhere in Scripture you realize the way in which we live begins with our identity. It always begins with our identity. It never begins with authority. It never begins with shame. It never begins with anything other than who you are, who you are in Christ. So in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says this, says this, you, your chosen people, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, now you receive mercy. Gosh. And if you read that, if you really spend time meditating on that, like your self-esteem is going to grow. You are the people of God a kingdom of priests. Once you were a people and now you're a people. And so how do you live? And what's interesting is I think the way we answer that question now is dramatically different than the way the generation before us answered the question. And for sure the way for the last 1,800 years people have answered that question. You see, we live in a Judeo-Christian context in Western civilization. And I love that, that passage uh, in Enjoy the World, right? He rules the world with truth and grace and let the nations prove because think about it, if you are the people of God and you get enough of you guys together, what do we want to do? We want to make sure the nations prove. We want our life and our faith to be evident. We want to exert our will onto the will of those around us because we feel like, right, our will is the will. It's the will of God and everyone should be living this way. And so the question is, can the nations still prove? And I'm going to at least argue, and we can have coffees or drinks some other time to talk about this more fully, but I'm at least for this morning going to argue that I don't think we live in a context where we can make the nations prove the way they used to. 
they used to, Christians used to be able to be the majority cultural uh, voice and we could, make our, uh, we could make our will happen around us. But that's not the case anymore. And one of the words that keeps coming up over and over again is the idea of Christian nationalism. And it just makes everyone tweak out. But really what that is, is Christians want to exert their will. Now that's happened on the right for a really long time. They were the first people to figure out, whoa, us Christians can exert our right into our culture and we can legislate this morality. God has called us to be his people. And we want to legislate this, right? If it comes about abortion or sexuality or now like religious freedom, right? We can do that. And those things matter to God. But is, how do we exert our authority, right? And those guys are getting, gosh, land blasted in every magazine out there. But the reality is, is the religious left is the same way. They finally figured out, oh, that's right. Even people who are more progressive in their Christianity, that God cares about certain things and are trying to make a biblical argument to persuade people also. A good friend of mine wrote this book about mass incarceration. He wrote the, the whole book was a biblical um, compelling the church why the church should care about mass incarceration. And we had this great debate one night because I was like, gosh, that's such a great book and your arguments are so great, but we don't live in a Christian nation anymore, right? You can't make a biblical argument to your neighbors of why Christians should care. But the Christian left does the same thing, right? They, we, they care about uh, Christian, uh, mass incarceration and the environment and racism, right? Those are things that, that matter and that matter to God. But can we compel our neighbors to do that anymore? So I at least would like to argue, I don't think we live in a moment, at least in Marin, where Christians have enough critical mass and enough street cred to say, hey, we are going to compel the nations to prove by leveraging our political voice, by leveraging ourselves on social media. However, we are still God's people. God still longs for us to give glory and testimony to him. But how do we do it? And that's where I think the frame needs to change. And that's why I love this passage in 1 Peter so it goes on to say this in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Gosh, what a gift, right? There was a time when Christians were the minority voice and we thought we were the majority for a voice for a long time. We've kind of like lost all our street cred, but how freeing is it to go, oh, what if we retake on we're foreigners? As foreigners and exiles, there's a way in which we can live and the way in which we can prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. How do we do it? To abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And that is our invitation because while um, Isaac Watts, who wrote this song in the middle of, you know, of Christianity being the center of Western civilization, of course you'd want the nations to prove and we live in a moment, in a post-Christian moment, where I don't know if we can make the nations prove, but you know what? We can make Marin covenant prove. Individually, you as your own person, us collectively, the body of Christ in all of Marin, we together can make the nations, we can make our churches prove, and we end up giving glory and testimony to God by the way in which we live. What I love is this idea of foreigners, because um, I read this book um, about a year ago. It's called The Destroyer of Gods, and it's an early, uh, how early Christian distinctives in the Roman world. So everyone wants to know, how did Jesus and his little band of followers, right, these little nobodies, end up over 300 years taking over basically the Roman world and becoming the main voice. How did they do that? And this guy, he goes through and looks at, uh, through history, anthropology, sociology. It's super fascinating. And the way they did it, I think, is super helpful for us living in a post-Christian context that we actually can live in a way 
in a subversive way that gives glory to God and ends up changing culture, just not on Facebook, us shaking our fists at each other in a different sort of way. So this is one quote, says this, the growth of Christianity in its first three centuries was largely by a combination of two things. One, the power of persuasion, whether that's in preaching, intellectual argument, or miracles exhibiting the power of Jesus' name, or two, the simply, uh, and simply the moral suasion of Christian behavior. Now, suasion, what word is that? This book's a little bit outside of my pay grade. So you look it up. Suasion is just a fancy word of saying persuasion, but it's, it's putting it, it's saying as opposed to using force. Instead of using force to make something happen, you're using persuasion. And so the way that we win over our neighbors is not by force. It's not by throwing our fists at them, but it's by suasion, the way in which we live. And that is what we're invited to do. And there's a passage of scripture that has shaped our church and has shaped most churches, thankfully, for a long time. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says this. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams when tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Or shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, those are the questions that we ask. We're the people of God. We live in this tension of this loving father, this mighty king. We want our lives to honor him. We want to do the religious things, moral things. We want to honor him. That's, that's part of who we are. And I love Micah because the question is, do we do all these religious things? Like, oh, you've missed it. You've missed it. If you want to honor God, and truly, if you want to give testimony to the God that you worship, then your life needs to be marked by these three things. So he's shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And again, those are three things that are meant to be held in tension. You can't just pick one and go, this is mine. If you take one of those, then you're giving a misunderstanding, a misrepresentation of who God is. All three of those are intention. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a middle-aged white man. Like, justice is not my natural language. That's like a new thing. And I'm such a slow learner. But the church has to be a place that leverages our privilege. It leverages our power. Every single one of us has a sphere of influence that we get to be God's people and we get to leverage all the gifts and skills that God's given us to, to bring about the right relationship, to right things, the right standings of all the people that we're around. And what's so great, someone like me who's a slow learner, I get to be a part of a church. I get to learn from our younger leaders and who are helping our church both corporately and individually to do that. So our church has said, you know what, Foster the Bay, we care about foster care, we care about life, and we're going to make sure we care about foster parents. Gosh, I'm in. I've never tried that muscle, but we're in. We're, we, about city impact and the poor and oppressed in San Francisco, ah, we're in. Hamilton School, we should be doing it at every school, but we have a small church. We pick Hamilton School, right? Those are places where we get to leverage our resources, our privilege to bring about the kingdom of God. We use justice. It's a tension, right? But the thing is with justice, justice, in order to make things better, we think we want more power and more power. And unfortunately, as humans, the more power we get, it's somewhere along the lines, it always goes poorly. And so that justice has to be married with mercy. Not just like, oh, we need to forgive each other because the Lord has forgiven us, but we need to love mercy. The whole Christian story is that we have been forgiven, that while we were sinners, God forgave us all of our sins, cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness. And so we don't want to just be like, yes, God, thanks for forgiving me. Lord, help me to forgive other people. But we want to be people who love it. It's like, I want people to offend me. I want people to wrong me because I want the opportunity for, to forgive them. It's going to blow their minds when I forgive them. I love it. I love it. 
That's right. So when you send me like awful emails, I'm like, yes, what an awesome opportunity to extend mercy. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, but it, I love it. And if we don't do those things, we miss out on giving testimony to the glory of God. I had this heartbreaking story of a really dear friend of mine whose sister, she's not going to see her sister over Christmas because they both love justice. And because they love justice and because of our weird political moment, they found that the line that they thought would, should, they should divide their family is on whether or not they should wear masks during Christmas or not. Right? And it's justice. Both sides have the most compelling argument. You can listen to both sides. I'm like, you are right. No, you are right. Justice. And they, divide, they, they made the truth claim, which is so bold, right? But as Christians, we have three things that we need to hold in tension. And how heartbreaking that this precious family, you're going to miss these sisters who have been best friends for their whole life, are going to miss Christmas together because they love justice. But what if they took that justice and included oh, to love mercy? And as they're trying to figure out how best to honor God and their family, to extend mercy and grace to each other, to look for opportunities for reconciliation, to realize that as the people of God, we get to do that to others. And that's what's heartbreaking for me, right? As in our own Christian community, we can't extend mercy. Gosh, how are we going to do it to the world so we can practice here? But if we get to be a people that loves justice, I mean, does justice and loves mercy, man, then we are on the way. And the last thing is, I think, the most important, that we are to walk humbly with God. You know, it's interesting. I think of all the people who have impacted me in my walk with Christ, all the people that have um, held me to account, held my feet to the fire, all the people who have challenged my theology, all the people who have pushed me down roads that I wasn't really ready to go, every single one of them were these humble, godly women and men who by their very character, by their very modeling, this posture of teachability and humility and to recognize that they're just sojourners on this movement towards Christ as well, I've been mesmerized. They've changed my life. They have caused me to go places that I thought I would never go spiritually. Not because they had a better argument, not because they leveraged their power, not because they were belligerent, not because they shamed me, but because they were humble. And their humble character, their humble walk with God was such a compelling testimony, gave such testimony to God's righteousness and the wonders of his love that I was compelled to rethink some of my own theology and some of my own praxis. And so while we, we may not be in a moment where the nations are going to prove the glories of God's righteousness and the wonders of his love, what if we just own that we're in a deconstruction moment? Who knows what's going to happen in our culture? I have no idea. Of course we should vote the way we're going to vote. Of course we should invest the ways we're going to invest. But I think the way that we are going to be God's people, the way that we're going to proclaim his goodness and grace, the way that the lost people around us who are going to come and know him is not going to be us shaking our fists, is not going to be some pithy Instagram meme. It is going to be us doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. Those three things, they have to be in tension. And if we make our walk with God just one of those things, then we miss out on this beautiful, complex relationship that's going to change our life, it's going to change our church, and it's going to change Marin. And what's so fun is I'm preaching the choir because our church is already doing this stuff. We already are exuberating, I mean, are exhibiting this kind of spirituality. And so we just want to do more and more and more because Jesus, he rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove. Ultimately, he's going to make everyone prove. Every single person is going to bow down before him one day. But until then, 
May we prove individually and may we prove corporately the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna spend a little more time in worship and um, as we head out of here, being God's people in every way and in every place. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, you are so good to us. You're so humble and so gentle and so long-suffering. Even when we've been running from you with our eyes closed and ears closed as fast and as hard as possible, you've been so generous to run after us. And because of your kindness, it leads us back into repentance. It's your love and it's your mercy that invites us to be your precious daughters and sons. And I pray that we can hold that intention with the fact that you are also a holy, consuming fire, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the universe in whom every single person in all of history is gonna bow down and acknowledge and worship you. And as we wrestle with that tension in our head, we also wanna live in a way that honors you. And I pray that we'd also be comfortable with the tension expand our mind, expand our heart, that we would not be content with just one small picture of who you are, but we would, or one small picture of how to live, but that we would be the kind of people that do justice, that we love mercy, and may we walk humbly with you from this day until our last, giving honor and glory to your son, Jesus, both now and forever. And all of God's kids said, amen. And amen.